Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also excited to grow the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardio nerds. We are establishing the cardio nerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as cardio nerds fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. And now without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing cardio nerds colleagues. are just so excited to be visiting such a wonderful city, San Diego, in the great state of California. We are here with three amazing fellows, Dan, Harpreet, and Quan. Guys, could you introduce yourselves? Hey there, Dan. Thanks for having us. Uh, yeah, I'm Dan Mangles. I'm one of the chief cardiology fellows, 30 years here, and excited to be here. Hey guys, I'm Harpreet Bhatia, one of the other chief fellows. Thanks for having us. We're excited to do this. And my name is Quan Bowie. I'm one of the second-year cardiology fellows at UCSD. Excited to be here as well. Dan, Harpreet, and Quan, welcome to the show. This is so incredible to have you guys on. And honestly, I've been so excited about this episode, about every episode, but really this episode in particular, because I went to medical school at UCSD, and I felt every day I was learning medicine from the very beginnings, and every day felt like a vacation. It's such a great city. We'd love to hear about it from your eyes and your perspective. So take us to one of your favorite spots so we can all hang out together and I can rekindle my love for San Diego before we get started. Thanks, Amit. Yeah, I, San Diego truly is one of the more beautiful cities and there's really a lot to appreciate about this area. I think for the purposes of this discussion and this conference, probably one of the more relaxing venues that we've done several times as fellows is on one of the fire pits on the La Jolla Beach. It's an area where you can rent a fire pit sometimes at night and just sit around there watching the waves crash. Very great weather, very nice, relaxing vibe. I think for this conference, if you can imagine your co-fellows, your colleagues sitting around this fire pit talking about an interesting case, it sets the tone very nicely. I don't have to imagine. I've been there. I love it. And I'm so glad you took me back there. Why don't we do what we love doing when we're hanging out with friends? Let's talk some cardiology. Sounds great. So let's dive into it. So I'm going to start with the case. This is a 29-year-old male with a history of a prior orthotopic heart transplant five years prior that was complicated by rejection, 
who had presented to our hospital with progressive dyspnea, orthopnea, and lower extremity edema. So a little bit more about that history. As stated, he had developed progressive dyspnea on exertion over the time span of about one week that accelerated two days prior to his presentation. He had additionally endorsed abdominal distension and bloating, orthopnea, as well as lower extremity edema. Previously, his New York Heart Association functional class was about class two symptoms, meaning he was able to walk about one to two blocks without symptoms at baseline. And again, this is in the setting of a patient who has a history of rejection and half-ref of his transplanted heart. At that time in which he had presented to us, he had essentially had symptoms of dyspnea at rest and was markedly limited with any degree of functional exertion whatsoever. It's interesting when you bring up New York Heart Association because what's conventionally taught in many medical schools and programs is the question of how many city blocks a patient can walk. Generally, more than a block or two is considered NYHA classification two, less than a block NYHA classification three. There are obviously differences in blocks. And one of our great thought leaders and the director of our heart transplant program, Dr. Adler, asked a great question when we're trying to decide how limited a patient is in their functional capacity. And that's as simple as asking if a patient has felt winded walking from their car to the office appointment. In general, if a patient feels quite short of breath with just that degree of exertion, it's a marker of at least MJ functional class three symptoms. Because as we know, there's a big difference between a New York City block and the blocks here in San Diego. So it's one of the ways to tease that out. Our patient, as I had stated, had symptoms that were significant even at rest. On review of systems for our patient, he denied palpitations or syncope. He denied cough, fever, or URI symptoms like sore throat, rhinorrhea, or achy joints. He also denied chest pain, nausea, vomiting, or bowel irregularities. One important point in a patient that has a history of a cardiac transplant is lack of innervation in the heart. And so the typical symptoms of, say, angina or ischemia may not present with chest pain. So that's why it wouldn't always be a reliable symptom in in a patient such as this. But some of the more atypical symptoms like nausea or fatigue would be important to ask. With respect to compliance with medications, the patient up until this point had endorsed total compliance with all of his medications. Dan, I'm going to reflect on the case so far. This is a very concerning history, right? You were giving a young man with a heart transplant who's coming in essentially with what sounds, I don't want to anchor just yet, but what sounds like left-sided heart failure symptoms with dyspnea, orthopnea, as well as right-sided heart failure symptoms, lower extremity edema. The differential diagnosis for heart failure is essentially the same as any other patient with the addition of a few important features, right? One is all the causes of heart failure in a heart transplant patient. Two are issues related with immunosuppression, right? Endocarditis, for instance. And then three, I think it's also useful to go back in the medical history and see what was the indication for heart transplant in the first place, just to better understand our host. For example, there are some entities that result in end-stage heart failure and are indications for heart transplant that can recur. For example, giant cell myocarditis, there is a rate of recurrence after heart transplant. In this patient, where our differential diagnosis is going to have to be essentially the same as any other patient, it's going to have to add all the things that can go wrong with heart transplant, the transplant heart itself, the features related with immunosuppression, as well as the original cause of heart failure that led to the transplant to begin with. 
That's exactly right, Amy. I think that's a good cerebral perspective because it is important to take the initial indication for the heart transplant into consideration. As you say, there are many disease processes, myocarditis processes, sarcoidosis processes that can cause residual cardiac dysfunction. And that would indeed be an important aspect to pursue when you're trying to elicit etiologies for a given decompensation. And that actually brings us quite well into this patient's past medical history. And he had actually received a heart transplant five years prior at the age of 24. And this was for an entity called arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, or ARVC. For those of you that don't know, this is a fibrofatty infiltration of the right ventricle. And in about half of patients, it can actually involve the left ventricle as well. It's a progressive cardiomyopathy. It tends to be associated with a high ventricular arrhythmia burden and does tend to cause quite severe heart failure, oftentimes requiring a transplant. And this was the case for our patient following his diagnosis of ARVC as a 20-year-old or so. He had developed several decompensations as well as cardiac arrest. Ultimately, he did eventually require that heart transplant, which was pursued at an outside institution. What's unique about our patient is that he was a young man at the time of his heart transplant, and that's a lot for a young adult to take on. The process of being entwined within the medical system, taking immunosuppressive medications, showing up for echocardiograms and diagnostic left heart caths, that's not easy for anybody and especially challenging for a young adult. I think that was part of why this patient in particular had so many issues with non-adherence. Unfortunately, there were four distinct episodes from the time of this transplantation up until he had presented for this hospitalization in which he suffered from various forms of cardiac rejection. And these were invariably in the setting of subtherapeutic immunosuppression levels and not taking immunosuppressive medications. Dan, these are some really great pearls and really great overview points. And I will say one thing that I really admire about folks that go into cardiomyopathy and really deal with these patients is how challenging it is. Let me rephrase it this way. You have a patient with ARVC, which a young patient, otherwise healthy, may have been an athlete, may have been very active, and all of a sudden they're hit with this idea that their life is different forever. And and sometimes they may not be coming in acute decompensated heart failure. Things are progressing slowly. And you as the cardiologist see the writing on the wall and you know where things are headed and you really have to help them cope with these really drastic changes. Cardiac transplantation is so complex. And I'm not just speaking about the surgical aspects, but making your patient the most ideal and suitable candidate that they could possibly be to get the actual transplantation requires more than a village. It's just an incredible amount of work that goes into taking care of the patient with the patient, again, being the captain of the ship. And then transplantation is really almost the beginning of the process. It's really a lifelong condition that requires continuous support, both from a psycho and social and medical aspect. And that's really what you're describing over here. And the other thing is, it takes more than a village to prep a patient for transplant, but it also takes more than a village to keep the patient alive post-transplant, not just in the acute setting in the hospital, but even as they go outwards. And obviously these programs that are high volume or even lower volume have the infrastructure set up to take care of these patients. And so when somebody presents like this gentleman with a week of these changes, that is very concerning. You know, even if he has struggled with compliance issues and adherence issues to his regimen and aggressive lifestyle modification, et cetera, something happened in the last week 
And that's making me nervous about this particular patient. Yeah, that's exactly right. Cardiac transplantation, it's a team effort. It's not just the patient, it's the patient's families and loved one. It's the entire physician and nursing team that requires a constant communication to make sure all the steps are achieved in a timely and reasonable manner. So it, it definitely is a challenging lifestyle adjustment and major life change. And again, for this patient in particular, at his age, I think that it's not a reasonable to give someone a little bit of understanding and how challenging it can be to keep up with all the care that's required for a newly transplanted heart. So going back a little bit more to these four episodes of rejection, I will say that these were all acute episodes of rejection. And for those that may be interested in heart failure, I won't dive too deeply into it, but there are essentially three types of acute rejection. There's a hyperacute rejection, which, as we know, is due to ABO incompatibility. That's a very rapid following transplantation. But the two more common types of acute rejection that you're going to see is acute cellular rejection due to a T-cell-mediated process and antibody-mediated rejection due to a B-cell-mediated antibody process. These forms of rejection are routinely surveilled. These are diagnosed via endomyocardial biopsies, blood work to evaluate for elevated PRAs or elevated percent reactivity antibodies and antigens. And these are forms of rejection that, if present, can cause quite significant cardiac decompensation. In the case of our patient, he had actually developed recurrent heart failure as a result of these four episodes of rejection. And his ejection fraction at the time of presenting to us was 35%. And several of his hospitalizations for these rejection episodes, he had even required inotropic support as well. Fortunately, he had been weaned off of that with the appropriate medical therapy to treat the rejection. Some of these therapies to treat the rejection include high-dose steroids, plasma phoresis, IVIG, and rituxan. His last rejection was actually about two years prior, and that again was an antibody-mediated rejection. And by the time he had presented to us, not only was his left ventricular ejection fraction depressed at 35%, but he had biventricular heart failure. He had RV dysfunction as well with a mild to moderately dilated RV. You may be wondering about chronic rejection. This is generally in the form of cardiac allograft vasculopathy. He did have a coronary angiogram about four months prior to this, which showed non-obstructive coronary arteries. With respect to his social history, he had worked in retail, he attended a community college, he lived alone in an apartment, he was monogamous with a girlfriend. Toxic habits, he drank about one to two alcoholic beverages per week, up to three drinks on a given occasion. He denied tobacco use or illicit substance use. He had no family history of significant cardiovascular disease aside from high blood pressure. Dan, just quick question. We mentioned that it's a toxic habit. So would you advise a patient with a heart transplantation that it's okay or not okay to drink this kind of alcoholic beverages like one to two per week? I think it needs to be tailored to the individual patient. There's always going to be a balance like anything with patient care. In general, given the amount of immunosuppressive medications and the changes that this patient had been undergoing with his medications... I probably would not. It it was advised to avoid alcohol at that time. It's another contributing factor which may affect various levels of immunosuppression, absorption medications. And as we know, sometimes patients do tend to drink more, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And those can ultimately affect drug absorption rates as well as contribute to, as we know, primary cardiomyopathy if done in excess. So with respect to the medications that the patient was taking prior to presentation, for his reduced ejection fraction, he was on bumetanide, 2 milligrams twice daily as a standing diuretic. 
He was on lisinopril, 10 milligrams daily. And further attempts to titrate up this medication were limited by a series of adverse events, notably acute kidney injuries and symptomatic hypotension with his patient. He was also on spironolactone, 25 milligrams. Again, not on an optimal dose. This is something that is concerning because we know from prior registries, the CHAMP-HF registry in particular, that less than 20% of all HEFREF patients in particular aren't even on optimal doses of medications, even if they do have the blood pressure to support them. This was certainly the case for our patient. He was not on optimal medical therapy, and there were any number of reasons for that, but uh, unfortunately, he was not. What is unique also is that these registries don't always include HEFREF as a result of prior cardiac rejection. This is a subpopulation that is not well studied, not well represented. So we don't necessarily know if these optimal doses in this particular population, which has very strange and unique pathophysiology with respect to denervation and renin angiotensin system, we don't know if these medications will work as well, although it is theorized and suspected. The other medication for Sephiroth that he had been on was Ivabradine. This is a medication that works on the funny channel and it is derived from data of the SHIFT trial, he had not been put on a beta blocker as he had recently had, or I would say maybe more remotely, decompensations that required ionotropic support. And in general, with orthotopic heart transplant patients, due to changes in denervation, they're a little more susceptible to the fatigue and the exertional intolerance of a beta blocker compared to a typical patient with HEFREF that's not secondary following a heart transplant. For his immunosuppression, the patient was taken to Crolimus, Sirolimus, and Prednisone. And the Sirolimus was a new medication that had been introduced over the course of a series of rejections. Sirolimus has additional added benefit in the prevention of acute cellular rejection, as well as cardiac allograft vasculopathy. And lastly, for his prophylaxis, remember all patients that are on immunosuppressive therapy and that have a history of a heart transplant are at an increased risk of both atherosclerosis and CAV, again, cardiac allograft vasculopathy. So he was on a baby dose aspirin, 81 milligrams for primary prevention, and then he was on pravastatin, 20 milligrams. I do want to highlight this pravastatin. It's a well-documented study medication. It's a statin that is preferred for cardiac transplant patients because it avoids the cytochrome P450 pathway, which is involved with its acrolimus metabolism. So I can go ahead and summarize where we are right now. This is a 29-year-old man who has a history of an orthotopic heart transplant five years ago, which the original indication for it was ARVC, which had been complicated by cardiac arrhythmias, cardiac arrest, as well as progressive biventricular dysfunction. And the patient's coming in with shortness of breath, with evidence of volume overload. Uh, and this is a patient who's had multiple prior episodes of rejection. And so I think coming into the exam of this patient, we're, we're concerned about heart failure. And part of what we're going to be trying to figure out is differentiating their symptoms of heart failure from kind of other etiologies, which could complicate the picture, such as infection, as this patient had episodes of infection as well in the past. And then trying to get to the etiology of these symptoms. If it does happen to be evidence of heart failure, we need to figure out why this patient's getting worse and why they're coming to the emergency room right now. That's great, Harpreet. Let me just pose a question that will be relevant to a lot of our listeners. 
from two different perspectives. Say this patient presents originally right now to an emergency room that's their local point of care hospital that isn't a transplant capable facility, doesn't have a heart failure, advanced heart failure service, doesn't have a mechanical circulatory support options, and has an ICU, but not a critical care sort of capable facility. What is your level of concern for this patient at this point? And either say you're the ED provider taking care of this patient and or you're on call for the heart failure clinic and they call you and say, hey, this patient's in the ED, this is your, it's your patient. Should we admit the patient to our medicine floor and diaries or should the patient actually be transported at this point to a hospital with advanced heart failure and cardiac critical care facilities? As we've talked about, because heart failure is, and especially heart transplant, is such a multidisciplinary effort, we always want to get these patients back at our center if we can. Because it's not just us as cardiologists, it's the surgeons, it's the infectious disease specialists, it's social work, psychiatry, nutrition. It involves a whole group of people who take care of this one patient. So we can provide a sort of a holistic approach to this patient that can't always be provided everywhere in, in places that aren't set up for that. So the answer is that we always want these patients transferred back to us. Again, going into the physical exam, we're going to be very concerned about the patient's vitals, about their output status, their perfusion of their end organs. And uh, a big decision point would even be how much oxygen or support this patient requires to help us triage this patient needs to come to the ICU tonight or this patient can stay in that hospital overnight and come to us when you know, a floor or a step-down bed is available. So in general, we, we want these patients always to come to us and we have to triage how quickly that needs to happen. That's awesome, Harpreet. And I'll just add that one of the considerations here, especially for this patient who has had a storied past with rejection. If we worry about rejection, there's an impetus to quickly and very aggressively diagnose that, maybe even with an endomyocardial biopsy on more of an urgent basis. And what we can think about on the clinical picture, the syndrome, to look out for are, you know, a rejection essentially is a myocarditis, right? It's an inflammatory infiltrate that's attacking the heart. And like we talked about in our previous myocarditis episodes, you can think of it affecting any layer of the heart. You can get pericarditis, you can get myocarditis with pump failure and shock, you can get affect the electrical system with VTVF and or heart block. And so if there's concern for any of these, we, we should look out for any of these. And in any circumstances, I totally agree with you that a patient should probably come to a heart failure capable hospital with a multidisciplinary team who knows the patient well, that medical home. But these are the features we're going to also keep an eye out for because they would indicate a more rapidly progressive course that requires a sort of an emergent diagnostic evaluation. Those are all excellent points, and I think very pertinent and tailored to this patient. I think one of the issues that, of triage in particular that comes to play a pivotal role is going to be contingent on physical exam in a patient that is immunocompromised with a history of a heart transplant is one of the more important exams, as all of internal medicine cardiology is, in differentiating how sick, how critically ill a patient is. For this patient in particular, when he had presented to our emergency room, he was afebrile, the temperature was 98, his heart rate was 95 beats per minute, blood pressure was 96 over 85, respiratory rate was 18 breaths per minute, his oxygen saturation was 100% on room air. One feature that you may, that may have raised your eyebrow would be the narrow pulse pressure. 
In general, a pulse pressure, the difference between the systolic and the diastolic blood pressure, less than 20 to 30 is generally considered narrow, and that is a negative prognostic sign and suggestive of features consistent with low output heart failure. From a general appearance-wise, he looked to be a well-cupped male. He had an anxious affect, but he was responding appropriately to questions. On auscultation, he had a regular rate, no audible murmurs, no S3 was appreciated. His jugular venous pressure was around 11 centimeters of water. He had a sustained hepatojugular reflux. He was lukewarm to touch in the kneecaps and the distal extremities, and he had one-plus pitting edema bilaterally up to the level of the mid-shin. Respiratory-wise, he had decreased breath sounds at the bases. More towards the lower one-third, he did have bilateral bibasilar faint inspiratory crackles, and he had a mild increased work of breathing. He was on room air. Abdominal-wise, it was mildly distended abdomen. It was non-tender. He had no peritoneal signs like rigidity or rebound. Neurologically, he was alert. He was oriented. He had a normal speech, grossly normal strength throughout. His electrocardiogram on arrival demonstrated a sinus tachycardia at 102 beats per minute. And this is common, as we had mentioned earlier, for prior heart transplant patients because of the lack of vagal innervation. In general, these patients will have a heart rate between 90 to 110 beats per minute, a resting heart rate. But as I had stated, the patient was on Evabradine, which is uh, aimed at lowering that resting heart rate. He had a right bundle branch block. This is also common after a heart transplant. It's the most common type of interventricular conduction delay, and it does not affect prognosis. Other findings of the EKG were right axis deviation, poor R-weight progression, and these were all stable findings from the patient's known prior EKG. His chest x-ray on arrival demonstrated an enlarged cardiometastinal silhouette. He had mild bilateral interstitial edema. He had small bilateral pleural effusions, and there were no consolidations and no masses that we could appreciate on his radiograph. So obviously, we were pretty concerned about this patient when we initially saw him. I think the physical exam confirms that. So this patient has, Dan Mangles mentioned, has evidence of a narrow pulse pressure and concern for low output heart failure. His exam is also concerning with elevated JVP as well as lukewarm extremities. And this is reflected as well with the chest x-ray showing evidence of volume overload with pulmonary edema and pleural effusions. So I think the things that are really important to look out for are markers of hypoperfusion. And as we mentioned before, I think the physical exam is the best way to evaluate that, looking at the extremities to evaluate whether they're warm or cool, but also looking at urine output too as well is really important. I think going to the labs um, and evaluating for markers of hypoperfusion include looking at the creatinine, looking at lactate, as well as looking at LFTs to see if there's any evidence of that. Other things given this patient's history of rejection is to look at whether the tacrolimus and immunosuppression levels are within normal limits. And so those would be the things I would look out for in this patient, given the physical exam, as well as the cardiac workup that's been done so far. Dan, that was fantastic. And Quan, that was a great assessment of where we're at now. Just to clarify for the listeners, just because their vagal tone is removed doesn't mean higher heart rates shouldn't be considered a warning sign. Say your patient did have sinus tachycardia to 140, would that be something concerning to you? I think a relative change from their baseline would be worrisome. So if their baseline tachycardia or heart rate 
is 90 to low 100s, then uh, relative change to the 140s would be concerning. I agree with that. And that kind of goes along with the idea that their vagal tone is removed, but their sympathetic tone still exists. Dan, that's, that's brilliant because this is what medicine is all about, is tailoring the differential and the assessment to the individual patient. This patient's outpatient resting pulse was in the 80s. Okay, and that's on Ivabradine. He's presenting here 90s to 100s. So that is a relative change. So even that change for this individual patient, for this person, is a clinically significant feature. If, say, his resting pulse was 100, he came in at 120, 140, obviously an additional relative increase adds more value to the assessment and the meaning of that heart rate. So it just goes to show how you need to individualize all of your assessment and care. Yeah, these are great teaching points. And Quan, I love the way you are anticipating what we should be looking for in the lab work. Dan, do we have some of this information at this point? We do. Okay. So for his lab work, he had a sodium of 135, potassium was 4.3, creatinine was 1.4, and that's from a baseline of 1.0. He had an elevated white blood cell count of 15 with a neutrophilic shift of about 80%. His hemoglobin was 13. His platelets were 256. His BMPP was elevated at 28,000, and his optivolemic BMPP, or the BMPP that we obtain when he has achieved a dry weight, was about 15,000. So his current BMPP was almost 15,000 more than his optivolemic BMPP. Wait, optivolemic? That's right, Emmett. So we've been using the term optivolemic to represent the ideal volume on a patient to achieve maximal perfusion and relief of symptoms. Historically, euvolemic or euvolemia has been assigned when patients have achieved that, but every patient requires a different amount of preload depending on their cardiac physiology. Some require slightly higher CVPs or central venous pressures based on pre-existing RV function or diastolic function. They may require differences in their resting volume status compared to the historically classic euvolemic status. So we individualize the optivolemic status for each patient. I'd never heard of the term optivolemic, but it makes so much sense. And it's probably more of a useful measure to gauge a new pro-BNP or BNP value when the patient comes in. This is just such tremendous optic teaching. Thanks, Evan. I appreciate that. But it, it does come into play because you will find patients you know, with or without heart transplants that do tend to run a little higher with respect to their optimal filling pressures. And that's okay. So as long as you're avoiding readmissions and symptoms of pulmonary congestion, you'll find patients that can run lower without the incidence of acute kidney injury or electrolyte abnormalities. And so that's why this term optivolemia comes into play when you're individualizing the care for a given patient. Yeah, thanks for going over that. Additional labs, so the fifth generation troponin level returned at 1300, and the repeat level was in the 1300 range as well, which was similar to his baseline troponin elevation. And as Quan had uh, alluded previously, it is critical to assess for markers of end-organ hypoperfusion. These include not only the clinical markers like oliguria or urine output and mental status in the physical exam, but also laboratory markers like elevated bilirubin, LFTs, lactate, and so forth. This patient's lactate returned at 1.7, which was normal. But again, lactate elevation, particularly in cardiogenic shock or low output heart failure, is one of the last markers to become elevated. There is a delay in the elevation of lactate. 
His LFTs were also within normal limits, AST and ALT. His T bilirubin was mildly elevated. Interestingly, his albumin was slow at 2.3, which gives you some marker of his degree of underlying cardiac severity even coming into his hospitalization. His spot, and I say not true trough to chrolimus and the serolimus level, were about nine. And his goal was generally around four to six. But again, these were levels that were taken on a mission, not true troughs, which were generally done just before consumption of these medications. And in working up that leukocytosis that I mentioned, he had a bland urinalysis. And with his immunocompromised patients, it's important to get a full urine culture as you may not always mount the white blood cell infiltrates within the urethral system. So urine culture was collected, a blood culture was collected as well. So I have to say, I'm a little taken aback by the fifth generation of the high sensitivity troponin being 1300. And I wonder if your assay is just different from what I'm used to. I'm used to saying the normal is like less than 10 or around that neighborhood. So 1300 would be essentially like a couple orders of magnitude above our upper reference range. How different is this from your reference range? Our reference range is at 2021 or 26 for the upper limit. Yeah, so this is quite elevated. Is this something you expect in a heart transplant patient to have a baseline elevation that is so high? Because that makes me wonder, is this one patient who's got some degree of chronic injury, right? Like we think uh, patients with cardiac amyloidosis have chronic microvascular ischemia and injury in that way. Or is this a patient with some sort of assay interference with an antibody to the troponin assay? Yeah. And also, are these labs that we're getting, these quote unquote baseline labs, are they from his prior rejections? So are we basically just seeing what his troponins were on prior presentations? That's right. You know, in general, these baseline labs, if they're not done as an outpatient, were done on prior hospitalizations. He had other hospitalizations before this for various reasons. I mentioned some AKIs or acute kidney injuries to lisinopril. So those were when some of these other labs were taken. But this elevated troponin is indeed concerning. It is above the typical level that we see for cardiac transplant patients. And it is something that portends a negative prognostic value for this patient. At that point, and we had assessed prior troponins on this patient, these were not in the setting of acute coronary syndrome or type 2 demand ischemia states. This was the patient's true outpatient or prior to discharge hospitalization troponin level. And again, there are any number of reasons for these chronically elevated troponins that aren't always acute ischemia. In this patient, he had quite advanced heart failure. That was likely the reason for this chronic, quote, troponemia or troponin elevation. I would just echo that the high level of troponin Gen 5 or high sensory troponin is just a marker of a negative prognostic value. I think that it is somewhat higher. I agree with you, Amit, that 1300 is pretty high for a patient, especially a heart transplant patient, even for a decompensated HEFREF patient that we typically see. Really, I see it above a couple hundred. And so I think this does show that there is significant cardiac dysfunction going on, and it's obviously worrisome for this patient. So our next step in evaluating this patient was an echocardiogram. And what we were looking for were some of the manifestations of, that you can see in a transplanted patient, such as pericardial effusions, obvious vegetations or abscesses, as well as changes to the wall motion or wall function in general. The echocardiogram was overall stable from his prior echocardiogram. As stated, demonstrated an injection fraction of 35%. He did have restrictive diastolic filling as well, a severely dilated left atrium. 
on top of his global hypokinesis, he had known pre-existing apical akinesis that again had been attributed to prior episodes of AMR and ACR. And he had mild MR, mild TR, mitral regurgitation, tricuspid regurgitation, reduced RV function with the RV right ventricular systolic pressure of 34 millimeters of mercury. All of these were stable. There were no new additional findings compared to his last echocardiogram and no pericardial fusion, abscess, or echo density. So with that in mind, as had been summarized before, this is already painting the picture of a potentially very critically ill patient who is presenting with symptoms of volume overload, specifically pulmonary edema and peripheral edema, and features both clinically by physical exam and by laboratory assessment of low output. His labs do demonstrate a leukocytosis, an acute kidney injury, chronically elevated troponin, chronically elevated BMPP that's higher than baseline, and imaging demonstrates pulmonary edema as well. So the diagnosis for us was quite clear in that the patient had presented with acute on chronic heart failure with a high likelihood of low cardiac output heart failure. The question was, what was the trigger or the etiology of this decompensation or this potentially new type of heart failure? And so some of the etiologies we touched on early in the case include recurrent rejection, especially given his history of rejection in the past. Other things being myocarditis could also be infectious etiology given his elevated white blood cell count, and we have uh, infectious workup ongoing. Another concern is an acute MI in this patient, and the troponin, while elevated, is appears to be baseline. And so I think that the next steps going forward to evaluate this would be to make sure and rule out rejection, especially given his history. And I think that can start off with a right heart catheterization, Swan-Gans catheter, and an endomyocardial biopsy. And that would probably be my next step going forward. And then that can help guide us on what steps to go in terms of managing this patient. This is something that we see a lot in medicine, especially with sick patients, with critically ill patients, where we have to start treating them and start managing them before we know exactly what's going on. And that's why things like physical exam and vital signs and basic lab work that are readily available are so important as kind of markers of what's going on so that we can start treating the patient, stabilizing the patient, and hopefully getting them better. We make time for further tests to gather more information. As Kwa mentioned, getting a, a right heart cath, getting invasive hemodynamics, and eventually pursuing an endomyocardial biopsy. But these things sometimes take time to, to marshal the resources and get everything together. While we're setting up the next steps, we're also managing this patient at the bedside. And this is someone who we're worried about. This is someone who's sick. And so this is someone who needs frequent assessments. And that timetable that we may have in our minds for when we're going to do these things could quickly change. I think it goes back to what we learned as interns, sick versus not sick. I think we recognize that this patient is extremely sick and needs acute management urgently. And so like Harpreet is saying, we need to basically manage the patient and we can get some more information along the way and put the pieces together. And this is part of the reason why having this patient at our center, which is uh, highly accelerated in advanced diagnostics and therapeutics for transplant patients, was important for this particular patient. We had to admit the patient directly to our ICU and were able to get a right heart catheterization with an endomyocardial biopsy very quickly after admission to get 
a lot of diagnostic data very quickly. And so that's what we were able to accomplish. His right heart catheterization demonstrated a right atrial pressure of 17. He had a pulmonary artery pressures of 34 over 24 with a mean PA of, of 28. Pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 23 with B-waves to 25. And as you can tell by just these pressures alone within the cardiac chambers, the patient significantly elevated by atrial filling pressures. This was already indicated by the physical exam. By FIC calculation, he had a cardiac index of 2.0. and Generally, less than 2.2 is conventionally considered a low cardiac output. He had a pulmonary vascular resistance of 1.29, which is within normal range, and a transpulmonary gradient, which is the difference between the mean pulmonary artery pressure and the wedge pressure, of about 5. Transpulmonary gradients greater than 8 generally indicate a non-post-capillary filling process or some other intrinsic pulmonary hypertension etiology. Two additional parameters I'd like to introduce are the PAPI and the cardiac power. So the PAPI stands for Pulmonary Artery Pulsatility Index, and this is essentially the difference between the pulmonary artery systolic pressure and the diastolic pressure divided by the right atrial pressure. Studies have shown that indexes less than two are highly consistent with right ventricular failure, particularly after a patient receives left ventricular support like LVAD. This patient's PAPI calculated to 0.58, which is clearly quite depressed and consistent with RV ventricular dysfunction. Additionally, the patient's cardiac power calculated out to 0.47. Cardiac power is an increasingly utilized calculation in the assessment of a patient's predicted mortality. Cardiac power by calculation is the mean arterial pressure times the cardiac output divided by 451. And we know through various studies, particularly studies involving impellas, which is a form of mechanical circulatory support, that cardiac power values less than 0.6 portend a high in-hospital mortality. As Kwan and Harpreet have brought up, we did obtain the urgent endomyocardial biopsies. These biopsies are expedited with our pathology department and can generally be returned within 24 to 48 hours. But in the meantime, we were faced with a critically ill patient with high biatrial filling pressures, a low cardiac index, significant right ventricular dysfunction, and low cardiac power. So as Harpreet had alluded to, we need to medically manage this patient as best as we could. So in an effort to improve end-organ perfusion, the patient was started on dobutamine. The patient was started on high-dose IV diuretics to relieve pulmonary and peripheral congestion. And importantly, and this is something that, again, is going to be unique at transplant center, the patient was treated empirically for rejection. He received a high dose of methylprednisolone, 1,000 milligrams. And I think one thing I would add here is just going back to what we've been talking about, triage and, and assessing how sick the patient is. In a patient like this, you can really be fooled because this patient came in with symptoms progressing over a week or two, but they were on room air. They were mentating well, had a stable blood pressure, pretty stable vitals overall. The labs were not dramatic. Lactate is normal. So you might think that this patient is not as sick as they are. And, and that kind of goes back to these other assessments that we've talked about in, in trying to assess their perfusion and, and trying to get more information and watch them closely. Yeah, this patient is fine. We can discharge and have him follow up in Hartford Bridge Clinic, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, guys, this is a really good point to point out that sometimes, you know, we initiate a treatment and we have certain expectations for the treatment. So, for example, if you think your patient has low flow heart failure and 
you're pretty confident that's the etiology and you think dobutamine is going to do the trick. You start your therapy and you see what happens. And a lot of times you could predict the response that you're going to see. And when that response occurs, you feel very validated that you're on the right track. And usually you are. And then you could use your other forms of parameters of your SWAN data and in the labs to confirm that and the clinical course, of course. With patients like this, where we really haven't knocked out the diagnosis just yet, we started a therapy. What do you typically expect from this kind of patient who comes in with rejection after rejection and basically is in heart failure. And we assume that he's going to be rejection again, potentially so much so that we start him on empiric IV methylpred. What do we expect for his course if we were right? It completely depends on actually the the diagnosis because depending on the type of rejection, that is going to dictate the individualized therapy. Media body rejection, cellular rejection have unique immunosuppressive treatments that differ from one another. For example, plasmapheresis for antibody-mediated rejection. And so depending on that biopsy of the heart in the staining for antibodies, that's what's actually going to differentiate. So to start a specific treatment for antibody-mediated or anticellular without knowing which is which, or potentially an alternative process, we talked about maybe having a primary myocarditis or something else, that would probably be a little too premature. But the methylprednisolone in general is a strong immunosuppressive agent. It will blunt the effects of an ongoing process until you can get that biopsy back. And again, we expedite those biopsies 24 to 48 hours. So again, exactly. This is not a case closed situation. This is not where you're like, all right, we'll check in next week and see how things are going. This is an active, actively investigated case. And I'm really interested to hear what happened next from a clinical basis. So we're not getting the optivolemic BNP and discharging the heart failure bridge clinic then? As much as we would have liked, that was not the case for this patient. Following the Swan-Gans catheterization and biopsy, the patient was admitted to our ICU, and he continued to worsen quite rapidly in front of us. He developed a new oxygen requirement of two liters nasal cannula. His labs then began to show those markers of end-organ hypoperfusion, elevated lactate, LFT elevation. He had demonstrated an inability to produce a robust amount of urine with our high-dose IV diuretics. For these folks, we really aim for at least three liters of urine output with our diuretics within the first 24 hours. And he was essentially oliguric with about 500 cc's of urine. And this is on high-dose diuretics. And importantly, we had a Swan-Gans catheter. We had tools. So we were trending the mixed venous oxygen saturation. And this, although it had been stable, continued to support a thick that calculated to a low cardiac index in the setting of a positive iontrope being dobutamine. So clinically, he was worsening. And then throughout that same day, he developed an episode of PA or pulseless electrical activity. The nurse had been in the room and the patient had lost consciousness. She felt for a pulse, which she did not feel, and CPR was initiated. At that time, based on our telemetry, the rhythm was actually a sinus tachycardia. It was not a VT or a VF. You can commonly see VTVF with acute rejection episodes. That was not the case for this patient. This was a pulseless electrical activity. He received about a minute of CPR with spontaneous arousal and ROS return to spontaneous circulation. And afterwards, as one would expect after a cardiac arrest already in shock, his vitals continue to look worse. Blood pressure uh, systolic in the 90s, heart rates 110s to 120s, and now with an increasing oxygen requirement. 
So the patient overall not only was clinically worsening, but he had just had a PA rest. And so I would ask of my co-fellows, Kwana Harpreet, the differential for a patient like this with a PA arrest, what are you guys thinking? Yeah, so typically when I think about a cardiac etiology to an arrest, I think about either a ventricular arrhythmia, like ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation. So it's unique to have a PEA arrest. I think the differential we learned with this includes the five H's and five T's. And so it's really good to go through all these possibilities. As I can remind you guys, the five H's include hypovolemia, hypoxia, hydrogen, which alludes to acidosis, hypokalemia, hypothermia, and hypoglycemia. And the T's include toxins, tamponade, tension pneumothorax, thrombosis, which can include coronary and pulmonary thrombosis, and trauma. So the ones that are most crucial to rule out in this case would be tamponade, especially since this patient had a recent right heart catheterization and endomyocardial biopsy, which can lead to a complication like a pericardial effusion. So grabbing that bedside echocardiogram is really important to do. Other things that are really important are coronary thrombosis, so an MI or a pulmonary embolism. We know this patient has a history of RV dysfunction, and so forming a clot in the RV is a possibility, and that can lead to a pulmonary embolism and lead to this decompensation. And those are the things that would be really important to rule out. Out of a place of really ignorance, I think about the ways in which people with certain disease processes die. People with cardiac amyloidosis they may pass because of electromechanical dissociation. They may continue to have organized electrical activity, but essentially lose their contractile function. And so it essentially would be like a PA arrest. Is that something you could see in uh, raging myocarditis, for example, in a patient with acute rejection? Yeah, PEA is a really interesting entity because it's such a grab bag. It's almost like the hef-pef of cardiac arrests, if you think about it. There are so many things that go into all of these conditions. But one thing that is, as you pointed out, it's really like the end stage of so many other disease entities. Barring a VFRVT shockable arrest, so many entities basically end in hypoxia or end in hypovolemia or end in hyperkalemia and so on and so forth. PA, the definition, there's really uh, different ways to explain it. One is that you have true PA where you actually are generating zero pulse. You have no pressure. Your heart is just has this electrical activity that really does nothing though. And I, I remember this distinctly when I was on my shock trauma rotation in medical school. And unfortunately, a patient was passing and, but their echo probe was still on the chest and you could just see the electrical activity was ongoing on the monitor, but the heart was literally just like vibrating and not doing anything. And there was no pulse being generated. But you could also have sustained low blood pressures that's not detectable by non-invasive measurements. So for example, if your MAP is 30 consistently, so your heart is actually raising a blood pressure, but your blood pressure cuff isn't measuring that, and that's not necessarily going to translate into a palpable pulse, that would still be considered PEA. Some people call that pseudo-PEA, but at the end of the day, you're not perfusing the brain or the vital organs. In this particular case, you can have electrical mechanical dissociation, as you pointed out, Amit, but at the end of the day, you could also have just persistent pump failure, and that could be what's going on as well. And the other point I'll add is that you mentioned thrombosis. And so you said pulmonary embolism and pointed out some of the risk factors for this particular patient, pulmonary embolism of an acute PE causing obstructive physiology such that the RV can no longer pump blood into the LV. And I actually found as a resident, we go all these codes and there'd be PA arrest and 
you'd be going through your H's and T's and consider, let's say, for example, the heart heart attack or an MI as your PA differential. And then people would say he wasn't complaining of chest pain before this particular and immediately think about PE. But actually, if you think about it, when there's an acute blocked artery, the systolic dysfunction occurs almost instantaneously. And people who work with proximal lesions and high-risk PCI appreciate this. And sometimes that's why they're reaching in their toolkit for things like the impella so that they can have the provided support when they inflate the balloon in the left main. They know the blood pressure is going to immediately plummet and they need something to support them to get the patient through the procedure. And so when you have a patient with such cardiac dysfunction at baseline, and obviously his risk factors are a little bit different because he's a transplant patient, but if coronary artery disease is of a concern, an acute occlusion could result in an immediate loss of blood pressure. Just some of the thoughts that I had on pulse electrical activity in the differential. I think that what Dan had stated is particularly compelling. You can have a pure pump failure. You can have transient worsening in the systolic function in a patient like this. And in a patient that doesn't have an arterial line, as this patient did not have up until this point, there may be a palpable pulse, but may not be brisk or strong enough for the nurse to palpate it. So it could just be very low blood pressure and a syncopal event in that setting. But clinically, you have to treat the patient as if it is a truly complete loss of pulse. But indeed, pump failure, low blood pressure, definitely on the differential. Yeah, and I, I would just echo that. I think with my reading of this case, sudden death in transplant patients can occur in severe cardiac allograft vasculopathy as well as severe graft dysfunction from rejection. And usually it, it results into rapidly developing pump failure with electromechanical dissociation. So I think you're spot on, Amit, when you, when you bring that up. Yeah, I'm loving this conversation, but I'm at the edge of my seat. What happened next? What did you guys do? All right. So as Kwan had mentioned, we evaluated this patient for some of those potential causes. So we obtained repeat labs. His electrolytes were not suggestive of potassium issues. Hemoglobin was normal. As would be expected, the lactic acid was elevated to five. The creatinine was up to two. The LFTs were elevated. With respect to thrombosis, we had obtained a repeat ECG. There were no new ST segment changes or T-wave inversions. And the troponin level was just slightly higher than what it had been about 12 hours prior. Nothing that we would think of as an acute myocardial infarction at that time. Chest x-ray also, no pneumothorax. And then a bedside ultrasound was without a pericardial fusion. Again, it's important to grab that after someone's had an endomyocardial biopsy. Those can be seen. The EF at that time on that bedside ultrasound was even lower. And this is common after a cardiac arrest, but the EF was about 10%. And so this patient is clearly critically ill in cardiogenic shock now with a PA arrest, and he continued to only get worse despite our aggressive medical therapies. These did involve escalating doses of dobutamine and dopamine, as well as the introduction of vasopressor therapies to elevate the blood pressure, norepinephrine, and vasopressin. But even after these maneuvers and attempts at controlling perfusion, he had continued to develop end-organ marker dysfunction, and hypotension. Additionally, he had two additional episodes of PA arrest. And at this point, he did have an arterial line in, and these were true pulseless electrical activities, events in which he did not have a arterial waveform present. We had actually had a TEE probe during one of these present. So we had a continuous monitoring of the heart function and there truly was a lack of systolic activity that would generate a stroke volume waveform. So a sick patient with recurrent PA arrests. 
in a patient like this, we have to think about escalating therapies. And one of the most important tools that we have in the Van Transplant Center is going to be temporary mechanical circulatory support as either a stabilization mechanism or a bridge to something, a bridge to transplant, a bridge to VAD, a ventricular assist device, or potentially a bridge to recovery. In a patient like this, there are any number of risk stratification tools. Clinically, it's clear the patient already had a high in-hospital mortality, but there is data from the SAVE trial, which looks at the SAVE score. It looks at different sort of variables like age, blood pressure, renal failure, and together they can portend a pronostic information about the likelihood of in-hospital mortality for a patient who is put on something like ECMO in particular. In calculating this patient's save score, it came out to about uh, in-hospital survival of 42% if the patient were put on something like ECMO. And 42% chance survival in a 29-year-old is a relatively higher survival, one that we would want to pursue as aggressively as possible compared to, say, percent survival closer to 2 or 3%. Given this clinical worsening and decompensation, we had considered mechanical circulatory support. This conversation, this juncture that we are in this patient's course is just really helps contextualize the earlier conversation we had when this patient was just having shortness of breath and orthopnea, PND, and lower extremity edema with his heart transplant, his rejections in the past. It's so useful that he's at a center where we can start having a conversation about temporary mechanical circulatory support at that hospital, at that facility, without having to transfer somewhere else. So it's just a reminder about the, the triage decision-making that we would have in this, in this context. Really glad that this patient is under your care right now where you can have this conversation and activate it expeditiously. Yeah, I think having a high suspicion for something else going on, for something worsening, having careful monitoring are all really important aspects of this case. So I think we come to another big decision point here. It's clear that the patient is worsening despite escalating interventions from our standpoint, multiple inotropes, vasopressors. Despite that, the patient is developing worsening perfusion, having multiple episodes of cardiac arrest. So it's clear at this point something else has to be done, something new has to be tried. And so the next step is mechanical circulatory support, as Dan said. But that's a big area. There's, a, there's multiple things that can be done for mechanical circulatory support. We have to decide what's going to benefit this patient. So it can start with something like an intraaortic balloon pump, an impella device, which could be both left-sided support or right-sided support, a tandem heart. The biggest gun that we have in terms of mechanical circulatory support and the reason VA ECMO was chosen for this patient was they had evidence of biventricular failure. They had both by clinical evidence, by laboratory evidence, by their echocardiogram, there's evidence of failure on both sides of the heart. So I'm going to talk a little bit about ECMO here, but essentially what ECMO is extracorporeal membranous oxygenation, that's what it stands for. And there's two components to it when it's VA ECMO, and VA means venous arterial. So it's extracorporeal gas exchange. So doing the work of the lungs and oxygenating the blood. And then it has a component of temporary mechanical support as well. There's also VV ECMO, which would be venovenous ECMO, which is just for oxygenation. So does not augment or supplement cardiac output and it is not for circulatory failure, but is for pure oxygenation issues. And this is something we're actually seeing, we're seeing a lot more of VV ECMO right now in the setting of COVID-19, 
We've been having a lot of patients with COVID-19 pneumonia who've been placed on BV ECMO. And we've seen a lot of these patients at UCSD. And fortunately, actually, a lot of them have done pretty well. And that's a, a shout out to our pulmonary critical care department here who's done an amazing job taking care of these really sick patients. But going back to ECMO as a whole, I think Dan brought up the, the SAVE score. And the reason we use that is ECMO is akin to doing transplant or doing LVAD placement where it's a big effort. It requires a lot of resources and comes with a lot of complications. And so you have to make sure you're choosing the appropriate patient for it. So you want to choose a patient who has a good prognosis, has an ability to recover. You want them to come off ECMO. And as Dan mentioned, this is either going to be to support them, to allow them time to recover from the underlying ideology of their decompensation, or it's going to just stabilize them long enough to get them to permanent support, or such as a left ventriculosis device or a retransplant. VA ECMO, uh, so the V is a venous cannula, which is typically in the femoral vein, can also be in the internal jugular vein, basically is draining deoxygenated blood from the body. It goes through an oxygenator to oxygenate that blood, and then it's reinfused into the body through an arterial cannula, again, typically femoral. And that blood actually travels retrograde up towards the upper extremities and the brain to provide oxygenated blood and cardiac output to those organs. The times when we reach for ECMO would be people with cardiogenic shock, with biventricular failure, cardiorespiratory failure, persistent or refractory cardiac arrest. This patient basically meets all three of those categories. And the difference sort of from other types of mechanical support is a, an intraortic balloon pump, a standard left-sided impella device. These only support the output from the left side of the heart. So if you have a weak right ventricle, you can basically support the left side of the heart, generate that output to the body, but then you basically bring it back around to the right side of the heart, put it into a weak right heart and can just make the right heart worse and increase the preload into the right heart. But if you're not supporting the right heart in a patient like this, they may not improve. Contraindications would be getting to what I said earlier about how this patient has a hope for recovery. So anyone who's you know not got a good neurologic status before this, who had an unwitnessed arrest or an unknown downtime, terminal illness, and you're worried about putting them on ECMO if they're going to ever recover. So ECMO can lead to bleeding issues and coagulopathy issues. And so someone who already has evidence of bleeding, already has a coagulopathy problem, you're going to be concerned because you don't want to, the last thing you want to do is make someone worse. And then I also want to just touch on the, the physiology of ECMO. One thing that's important when managing these patients is ECMO supplements the cardiac output, and you can get three, four, five liters uh, cardiac output circulating. It does the work of the lungs and oxygenating the blood, but it doesn't actually unload the left ventricle. And what I mean by that is you're taking blood from the systemic circulation, but you're not actually taking blood specifically out of the left ventricle. That's important in a patient like this because their left ventricle is weak, so you kind of have a blood pool there in the left ventricle. In addition to that, ECMO could actually make their LV dysfunction worse because ECMO increases their blood pressure. It increases the blood flow into the arterial circulation. So that left heart sees more afterload, which can lead to elevated left-sided filling pressures, increased distension uh, of the left ventricle, which then can lead to increased myocardial oxygen consumption and ischemia, 
can lead to backflow of blood and pulmonary edema and just stasis of blood and thrombosis. And so one of the major questions that comes up with someone who's put on ECMO is if you need to support the left ventricle and something we call venting. So venting is basically using an additional strategy to take blood essentially out of the left ventricle into the systemic circulation so then it can flow through the ECMO circuit. And so options for that typically for us include an intraaortic balloon pump or an impeller device. So some of the major complications that can occur with ECMO include SIRS, inflammatory response, platelet damage and bleeding, vascular complications and limb ischemia. There's a thrombosis and, and stroke risk as well as I kind of talked about worsening of LV function. So another management issue that comes up with these patients is the use of a distal perfusion catheter. Is essentially, if you picture the ECMO circulation, you have at the arterial cannulation site, you have blood traveling retrograde from the lower extremities upwards. You may not be providing forward flow into the lower extremities, but distal perfusion catheter is another catheter that can be added on that provides anterograde flow to the lower extremities to prevent lower extremity ischemia. There's also potential issues with differential perfusion with upper and lower parts of the body, and we get concerned about ensuring that there's cerebral perfusion. But I think the the big take-home for VA ECMO is you're augmenting oxygenation, augmenting cardiac output. You're supporting both sides of the circulation, the left side as well as the right side. So it's good for someone with biventricular failure. But you have to watch out for people with LV dysfunction to make sure that you're not making the situation worse with high left ventricular afterload and worse left ventricular filling pressures. And then, as I mentioned, it comes with a number of other complications. So you got to choose the right patient, make sure that this is someone who's going to benefit from this big intervention, and then make sure that you have an exit strategy. And that's something that as soon as you put someone in ECMO, we say we're trying to figure out how to get them off. Harpreet, I just uh, want to say that this was such a terrific overview. I have nothing to add. You went over the fact that ECMO is a biventricular as well as a pulmonary support. You went over the axis and the cannula. You went over the complications. You went over the north-south syndrome or the Harlequin syndrome or the mixing cloud. You talked about the need and the strategies for LV unloading. This is a great overview and very relevant for our patient. What did we do for our patient and was there an unloading strategy utilized in this case? Yeah, so this patient ended up having essentially three major interventions. So one was, of course, the VA ECMO cannulation, femoral axis, femoral artery, femoral vein. Second was for the venting of the left ventricle. He received an impella CP to, again, offload that ventricle to relieve the body of pulmonary edema. And then for the third intervention, this was that distal perfusion catheter to his left lower extremity to help perfuse that distal femoral artery all the way down. So those were the key interventions that were done. These were done at an expedited, very quick manner with our interventional team who does that here at UC San Diego. And so now that we had placed this patient on ECMO with continuing support, we had, again, continued our medical management, which still consists of high-dose steroids, ongoing presser, and anotropic titration. But at this point, we needed to discuss exit strategies and contingency plans. Given that this patient, regardless of the etiology of the heart failure and the shock, given that this patient was young, critically ill, we had already started the workup for a potential by that biventricular support device 
as well as a redo repeat orthotopic heart transplant. This was an organization committee ad hoc joined on the spot with our surgeons, our dietitians, our nutritionists, our psychologists, our ID doctors, who all get together at any given time throughout the day to discuss a critically ill patient about what the next step should be. And for this patient, it was decided that in addition for approval for a biventricular VAD support, a repeat heart transplant would also be indicated and beneficial. So the patient was actually listed quite quickly for a heart transplant as soon as we got our endomyocardial biopsy back. That biopsy actually ended up not showing antibody or cellular mediated rejection. So our premise of an antibody or cellular mediated rejection, which the patient had four times prior, was not the case. And as such, we were left with one last major differential, which was a chronic type of rejection, something that we discussed before, cardiac allograft vasculopathy. And as we had discussed, the patient had relatively normal angiographic coronary arteries four months prior. But it is conceivable and possible that within those four months, the patient had an acceleration of his CAV, cardiac allograft vasculopathy, to such a degree that it caused his current decompensation. And it's also very conceivable that a lot of this PA arrest or pump fillers were from these microvascular events that caused temporary stunning as well, pure pump failure. So after concluding this CAV, again, in some situations with CAV, if there is an acute MI, an acute myocardial function, you may proceed with an angiogram for the intent of a stent. This patient was beyond that phase. This patient was too critically ill. This patient had already been to the point where he needed some contingency plan beyond this. A stent would have been unlikely to have resuscitated this patient to a sufficient degree. So fortunately, the patient was listed at the top of the list. And so at this point, the patient had been in our hospital for about eight days or so, had been on VA ECMO for about six days, and listed for about two days, after which point he did receive his heart transplant. He did exceedingly well after this, was able to be weaned off on anotropic support and reinitiated on immunosuppression. The remainder of his hospitalization was relatively uncomplicated. He did ultimately require tracheostomy that was decannulated due to a ventilator-associated pneumonia. Ultimately, the patient was able to walk out of our hospital about four weeks later with his second heart transplant, this overall being his third heart. That's just amazing. Bravo and really incredible outcome after such a valiant fight for his life. And I love the idea of that ad hoc meeting of the minds. How incredible is that? We really do have one of the more engaged and attentive surgical team that I've encountered in my training thus far. And when you have a sick patient, you want that team to be available at any point during the day. And that's what we were able to provide for this patient. That ad hoc meeting is critical. Yeah. And again, just speaks to making sure that patients like these are in their medical home capable facility that can provide such complicated and a high level of multidisciplinary care. So the ultimate diagnosis, it sounds like, really was advanced cardiac allograft vasculopathy? That was our conclusion. And in supporting that, the pathology of the heart actually ended up showing a near complete luminal obliteration of almost all the parenchymal arteries, so the small arterioles that perfuse the myocardium, as well as diffuse intimal thickening throughout all epicardial arteries, left main, LED, left anterior descending artery, as well as the right coronary artery. 
And on top of this, the biopsy of the heart itself showed varying ages of myocardial infarction, likely at least some form of small microinfarctions that had been occurring up until the four months prior to his hospitalization. Wow. And this really helps understand this chronic troponemia. It's like something that, again, we would we, we see in patients, uh, a parallel would be like cardiac amyloidosis, where there is microvascular infiltration with microvascular ischemia, and you may not get an appreciation for that in the coronary angiography. Yeah, I think it really uh, helps if you understand the pathophysiology of cardiac allograft vasculopathy. So in summary, it's an abnormal vascular fibroproliferation, and it's a result of coronary endothelial inflammation, typically. And it affects both the microcirculatory as well as the epicardial system. There is actually a high incidence of cardiac allograft vasculopathy, and some registry data suggests that 40% at five years. And one in eight deaths beyond a year after a heart transplant are due to CAV. And like Ahmet was saying the classic symptoms of myocardial ischemia are usually absent due to allograft innervation related to heart transplant. And so these patients present very atypically with weakness, dyspnea, palpitations, or even late with evidence of graft dysfunction with heart failure, arrhythmia, or sudden death. And as we mentioned before, Sometimes CAV can progress very rapidly. Usually it's a slow process, but it can progress rapidly and unpredictably. And so a matter of months, the angiogram can change from a relatively benign picture to a diffuse occlusive pattern, which we saw in our patient. And such rapid progression can be associated with the occurrence of late antibody-mediated rejection, which this patient had. And so that kind of helps put everything together. In terms of detection, it's really important to detect it early. And there's a couple of different ways we can do this. There's non-invasive techniques, including stress echocardiography and myocardial perfusion imaging and cardiac CTA, but the gold standard is coronary angiography. And due to the diffuse longitudinal concentric nature of the stenosis, compared to the focal and eccentric pattern that we're usually familiar with atherosclerosis, coronary angiography can severely underestimate the presence and burden of this process. And what we've been doing is that we've been using IVIS, intravascular ultrasounds, although there is no clear consensus on the diagnostic criteria for cardiac allograft vasculopathy. But most of the clinical trials apply the criteria of a maximal intimal thickness of 0.5 millimeters in the left anterior descending artery one year after transplantation as being diagnostic of cardiac allograft vasculopathy. And so once we've made the diagnosis, there's different ways to manage this. And empirically, we've been using aspirin, although there is no strong evidence for this use, but we use it on a presumed benefit to help with microthrombi formation at the sites of immune injury in the coronary endothelium. Other treatments that we can do include pravastatin or statin therapy, and usually that's initiated two weeks after transplant. And as Dan mentioned, statins, the pravastatin is, is a preferred statin to use just because it is not extensively metabolized by the CYP3A4 mechanism. And statins have been shown to reduce CAV as well as mortality and also severe rejection. So that's why we use it so much. The other management strategy is actually to adjust immunosuppression. And so this includes our mTOR inhibitors, which stands for mammalian target of rapamycin, and that's the use of serolimus and everolimus, which inhibit the vascular smooth muscle and fibroblast proliferation. 
it's very similar to um, the drug-eluting stents that we use for coronary atherosclerosis. And Dan also mentioned the use of PCI, although there have been no control studies that have been performed to determine if it affects or improves graft survival. But if there is a focal lesion in one artery, it can be used, uh, more of a palliative measure. And ultimately, the only definitive approach for treating CAV or cardiac allograft vasculopathy is retransplantation. And we usually reserve that for severe grade 3 cardiac allograft vasculopathy. And that grading is based on the data that was presented in the ISHLT, International Society of Heart and Lung Transplant, in 2010. So in summary, I think cardiac allograft vasculopathy is a very common complication or cause of morbidity and mortality after heart transplant. And it can present very atypically, and so you have to have a high suspicion of it. Surveillance for this is through coronary angiography and the use of intravascular ultrasound. And once we identify it, we can treat it with different medications, including aspirin, pravastatin, as well as adjustments of our immunosuppression. Yeah, I think what made this case so interesting is that he had angiographically normal coronary arteries four months prior. This, by the way, was also when his troponin was in that chronic elevated high range. And so this just goes to show how I think IVIS is, is playing a much more important role in the surveillance of CAV for these patients. Routinely now, we are doing coronary angiography with IVIS for all of our transplanted patients to look for accelerated CAV. So ultimately, this was a case of a very rapid acceleration of CAV in a patient who presented a cardiac shock who we were able to resuscitate temporarily with ECMO and advanced mechanical circular support as a bridge to a heart transplant. And ultimately, he was able to walk out of that hospital, and he is doing quite well, I'm happy to say. He's in good spirits, and he's keeping up to date on all of his medications. So we had a good outcome with this patient. Guys, this was just absolutely fantastic. The whole discussion was pure gold. We learned so much, and it really is a testament to the capability and the importance of having a multidisciplinary environment, a whole heart team where people can come together and pull resources and put the patient front and center. And it's really, it's making me very nostalgic because I'm remembering so much of, uh, of how much I enjoyed being a medical student and learning from all the legends and mentors and educators at UCSD, whether it was rounding in the unit with Dr. Shami Mahmood or learning from Dr. Lori Daniels or, or getting advice from Dr. Blanchard. I mean, it was just such a great place to learn as a medical student. It was one of the places that really helped me fall in love with cardiology to begin with. But I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective now. Like, wh what are the reasons that you decided to become cardiologists and what makes your heart splutter about training at the University of California at San Diego? So I, I can start with that. For me, I had been attracted to cardiology from really medical school when I had begun learning about the basic physiology and pathophysiology of the cardiovascular system. There's a great deal of logic in the way that the CV system works that just it, for some individuals like myself draws you more into it because you can work with the different components of the CV system, like the Renan angiotensin system, Frank Starling curves, different sort of physiological assessments to understand how derangements can affect a patient. And the manipulation of that, the logic and the flow of cardiology just became an intellectually very engrossing experience for me. What's so unique about cardiology is that we have these very advanced tools in diagnostics and intervention, ranging from EP to interventional to advanced imaging. 
to genetics that really help patients. They truly get better. They feel better. They have better outcomes and they are less likely to pass. So for me, becoming a cardiologist was a no-brainer in an effort to truly help patients. UC San Diego is a very unique institution situated in Southern California. And our goal is really to train academic physicians, physician scientists, and physician leaders. Our foremost goal has always been to train individuals to be thoughtful physicians that provide exemplary, outstanding patient care. We have a very rigorous program with a massive breadth of exposure to all major subspecialty services. And this includes adult congenital heart disease, structural heart disease like TAVR, transaortic valve replacement or MitraClip, even tricuspid interventions, as well as electrophysiology, advanced arrhythmia departments. Obviously, we have advanced heart failure and transplant teams, uh, genetic cardiomyopathy departments, and very advanced imaging training as well, and CT, MRI, PET, and so forth. As a result of the exposure to all these advanced subspecialties, fellows come out of this training with exceptional competency, COCATS level two in almost every field within their cardiovascular training. So this is CT, echo, MRI, nuclear, TE. The number and amount of exposure and experiences that we get is truly outstanding. Every fellow, I think, feels incredibly confident and competent leaving UC San Diego Cardiovascular Medicine Training Fellowship. We do train independent leaders. We train people to be thoughtful, critical thinkers, those that can rely on their training and those that can work well with others to provide very advanced clinical care for patients. So most of our fellows do tend to stay within academia. They do tend to pursue advanced, especially training, but we do also have some fellows that are more geared towards community medicine as well. And then in addition to these advantages, UC San Diego is a research institution, period. We have some of the more robust research that I have encountered in my career thus far, from uh, basic or uh, benchside research to ongoing clinical trials. We are leaders in robotic percutaneous coronary intervention, TAVR interventions, MitraClip intervention, structural heart disease, as well as many other clinical trials. And so for fellows who are interested in research-oriented tracks or continuing to make research a large component of their careers, it is not challenging to find a good mentor and a good longitudinal project or projects to pursue throughout your fellowship. And it doesn't need to be said that UC San Diego is incredibly collegial and friendly. My colleagues, my coworkers, from my fellows to the internal medicine residents, to our subspecialists, to our consultants are all friendly. We go on a first name basis. It is a very welcoming environment. It's a very warm feeling to be a physician here. The city is obviously amazing and beautiful, and there's so much to explore. It's hard not to like being a fellow here at UC San Diego. So I was looking most forward to this part of the segment, which is what makes your heart fuller, because I listen to this podcast pretty frequently. And I can remember the day I became interested in cardiology, which was first year of medical school during my cardiology block. And I remember listening to this advanced heart failure doctor, Larry Allen, and I approached him after class, and he took me under his wing and invited me to the advanced heart failure unit, and I rounded with him, and I remember just falling in love. And I think it comes down to mentorship is what what brought me to cardiology, and I've formed such great mentorship at UCSD, and I will echo the same words that Amit said from Dr. Lori Daniels to Dr. Eric Adler to Dr. Howie Tran and Dr. Yuri 
I've had so many great mentors at UCSD, and I'm just so happy to be where I am today. I think UCSD overall is a wonderful place to train. Yeah, for me, like Dan said, my interest in cardiology started with the physiology and everything else really springs off of that. And everything we learn in cardiology, everything we do, it all tracks back to physiology. And it it always just seemed to make sense. And I always found it really fascinating how the heart works. Uh, And then learning more about cardiology, I was amazed by just the breadth of cardiology. Even as coming into fellowship, I I learned more about really how big cardiology is and the variety of aspects of cardiology, all the subspecialties, all the different imaging modalities and procedures that are unique to cardiology. And then there's the the burden of disease. This is the, the biggest cause of mortality in the world. And so it's an important field and it's a field that has a big impact. And you can have an impact in so many ways. And we take care of patients all the way from prevention to these end-stage critically ill patients on maximal life support that science and technology have provided us to this point. Cardiology is, I think, an amazing field. It, It covers everything. It allows us to be medicine doctors every day. And we don't leave our medicine training behind, which is what I, part of what I really love um, about cardiology is we we're internists first. And now what, what makes my heart flutter is preventive cardiology. And my passion is learning how to keep people from getting to this point and to, to keep people healthy and to prevent the development of cardiovascular disease and, and to do that from a clinical research standpoint. And something that, as everyone's mentioned, I've been able to find mentors in, in here at UCSD who are helping me to get the skills I need and set the foundation for hopefully a, a career in doing research in that area. You guys, these perspectives were absolutely beautiful. Thank you for sharing. But you forgot the best part. Does Dr. Blanchard still take people out for, for drinks and food and do a board review every now and then? Oh, yeah. We, we actually were doing that up until COVID. It was, it was pretty oh. uh, a, a memorable experiences. But yeah, we would, uh, you know, every two, three months go to uh, one of our local restaurants, reserve the entire room and just crush questions. And it's an awesome experience. But yeah, he, he was doing that. Obviously, with COVID, things have changed, but re- we've transitioned over. That makes sense. It's so epic, man. It's just, a, it's really a testament to the dedication to teaching and the investment into the fellows. Absolutely. Dan, Kwan, Harpreet, you guys are just absolutely amazing. Thanks for inviting us into your world. San Diego is a fantastic place. We talked about a post-transplant patient, heart failure, PEA arrest, CAV, and discussed such a gamut and spectrum of all things you need to know, heart transplant, all things you need to know, PEA, all things you need to know, resuscitation, mechanical circulatory support, CAV, and why people need to become cardiologists. This has been such a delightful conversation. We are just so impressed with your program and the collegiality between you three, and also just the breadth and depth of knowledge that you have imparted on us today. So thanks, guys, for joining us, and thanks for being on the show. Of course, this was an amazing experience. And Mitt and Dan, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been so much fun. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed this experience. Thank you, everybody, for listening. That was our case. So now I'm going to hand it off to our expert faculty leader and one of our associate program directors. He is a very wonderful physician, truly one of our uh, most treasured mentors here at UC San Diego. Uh, that is Dr. Tran. He heads the mechanical circulatory and LVAD program here at uh, UC San Diego. Thanks, guys. Hi, this is Howie Tran at the University of California, San Diego. 
I am a heart failure MCS transplant cardiologist. I also am the uh, associate program director for the General Cardiology Fellowship alongside the program director of the Advanced Heart Failure Fellowship. I am a certified 10 out of 10 cardio nerd, so thank you very much, Amit and Dan, for providing this platform for fellows all over the world. It is my privilege to follow our superstar fellows. Dan Mangles, uh, Harpreet Bhatia, and Kwan Bui, thank you for honoring me as your ECPR discussant. Now, if we were to be at the shoreside in La Jolla, I'd probably start off this discussion with funny stories about my fellows, or maybe even regale the audience to the last October 2019 pre-pandemic when we had our Divisional Fellows versus Faculty Softball game. I won't shame these guys by sharing with you the final score, but we did beat the fellows 18 to 8. Uh, nevertheless, we are tasked for a more important discussion. As with all of our heart transplant patients, this gentleman involved in this case is near and dear to our hearts. Now, if the five of you have already pointed out, as we consider heart failure patients for cardiac transplantation, we are arriving at perhaps the very most life-altering event in their lives. And at our institution, heart failure faculty finish ICU and ward rounds and always pull up a chair after ICU and ward rounds to the patient's bedside along with their family members. We put our phones on silent and embark on an explanation of what had happened, why they are at our center, what therapies we are currently employing, and what therapies we are considering in the future. To make matters even more complicated, our patient in this situation is a young guy. And as you pointed out, these discussions must be met delicately. Here at UC San Diego, our general cardiology fellows are an integral part of the advanced heart failure team. They have front row seats to patients who transfer from local hospitals in severe cardiogenic shock. Also very complicated patients needing MCS, heart transplantation, and complications thereafter. Now Dan, Harpreet, and Kwan performed a wonderful and engaging discussion about our patient ECMO support, cardiac allograft vasculopathy. But uh, let's further elaborate on the latter. So early in the post-transplant period, the first six months or so, lives can be claimed by nonspecific graft failure, acute rejection, infection. However, beyond the first year, cardiac allograft vasculopathy or cardiac transplant vasculopathy is among the top causes of death. And according to the ICHLT or the International Society for Heart-Lung Transplantation Registry report in 2019, about a third of patients have angiographic disease at 5 years, 50% at 10 years. But there are studies involving serial intravascular ultrasound that reveal most intimal thickening occurring within the first year of transplantation. So what's going on? The particular vasculopathy is a diffuse concentric longitudinal intimal hyperplasia confined to the allograft epicardial coronary arteries, and this remodeling lead to substantial luminal loss, as you saw in this case, and obviously the allograft microvasculature is also involved. Now, this is in contrast as to the traditional atherosclerotic plaque, which is focal, non-circumferential, and usually in the proximal portion of the epicardial vessels. How is this happening? We have immunologic and non-immunologic reasons. Immunologic events appear to be the most important factors, though, since CAV develops in the donors but not the recipient's arteries. So number one, number of episodes of moderate to severe cellular antibody-mediate rejection appears to be correlative with the development of CAV. Number two, development of donor-specific antibodies. That's de novo development of anti-HLA class 1 or 2. Number three, HLA mismatching, in particular HLA-DR and HLA-A. 
So it's probably a good time to talk、uh, a little bit about T cell activation at this point. Remember, MHC class one alloantigens are recognized by CD8 cells, which forces secretions of、uh, cytokines and then ultimately activate coronary endothelial cells. And these activated endothelial cells in turn express increased MHC class two antigens and activate CD4 cells. And that's how you get some of the antibodies involved. So who's at risk? Now, important predictors of CAV development include in the donor, older age, male, and hypertensive disease. In the recipient, HLA mismatches, younger age, ischemic heart disease. Other risk factors include cytomegalovirus infection, hyperglycemia, and insulin resistance, hyperlipidemia. So, the five of you spoke a little bit about the signs and symptoms. So, let's turn to that for a bit. And you're right. Patients typically do not have symptoms of angina, and as the heart is denervated at the time of transplant, so it is not uncommon for patients with vasculopathy to have silent myocardial infarction, sudden death, and progressive heart failure symptoms. In some patients, sudden death may be the first symptom of CAV. The mechanisms of other ventricular arrhythmias may include a rapidly evolving pump failure with electromechanical dissociation, as both of you guys have pointed out. Because the nature of these silent symptoms, we in practice screen patients for progressive disease. Coronary angiography is the most common screening approach, and here at UC San Diego, we complete a coronary evaluation in tandem with IVIS. During the first five years, what we do for surveillance is a yearly coronary angiogram. If the eGFR is less than 30 or 40, a dopamine stress echocardiogram is performed instead of an angiogram. After five years for low-risk patients, i.e., normal angios, an annual dopamine stress echo is ordered. For those with evidence of CAV, an annual surveillance with coronary angiography is performed if renal function allows. Now we can get away with this surveillance protocol because CAV typically progresses slowly. However, there are occasions when lesions progress rapidly and unpredictably, as in this case. IVIS or intravascular ultrasonography is helpful to confirm the diagnosis of CAV, but not all transplant centers employ IVIS. The criterion for diagnosis using IVIS in clinical trials is an increase in maximal intimal thickness or MIT of greater than or equal to 0.5 millimeters in the LAD at first detection, or in comparison to the last IVIS evaluation. So what do we do now once we have a patient with CAV? Now Quan talked about statins. We put all of our heart transplant patients on aspirin and statin therapy during their hospitalization after the transplant. So some studies have shown statins to improve CAV incidence. We initiate pravastatin 20 milligrams once a day and uptitrate to 40 milligrams daily. As Quan and Dan pointed out, the CNI, the cyclotactro, inhibit CYP3A4. And of note, Prava is not completely metabolized by CYP3A4, so that's why we use it. Additionally, mTOR inhibitors like sirolimus and everolimus have been shown to reduce the progression of MIT and CAV. There are reports of wound healing issues, particularly in renal transplant literature. Therefore, at our institution, we do not use sirolimus in the early transplant period as much. But when we do find an MIT that is greater than or equal to 0.5 millimeters, we Do what we can to keep the calcineurin inhibitor. Add on the mTOR inhibitor in lieu of the anti-metabolite, like mycophenolate. That's MMF for Celsep. We would then keep a combined trough goal 
of CNI and mTOR inhibitor closer at about 10, favoring the CNI level. That is to say, a trough goal of about 6 to 8 for the CNI and 3 to 5 for the mTOR inhibitor. Keeping in mind per patient level uh, decisions regarding anemia, thrombocytopenia, tremors, and renal insufficiency are all very important. Retransplantation is the only definitive approach. So in summary, when we take a patient post-transplant and evaluate their CAV risk, we take a look at vascular risks. We obviously avoid rejection. We have CMV prophylaxis. We place it on aspirin and statin therapy. We survey their coronary tree with angiography with IVIS at about three months and yearly up to about five years. Once we find cardiac allograft vasculopathy, then we'll convert their anti-metabolite to an mTOR inhibitor fairly early on. Again, retransplantation for those with severe ISHLT grade 3 CAV with allograft dysfunction, we will consider for a retransplantation. So at our heart transplant program is unique. And now if you look into the latest SRTR, that's the Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients, our center challenges the status quo all the time. We push harder particularly when we find patients who are sicker. We were the first on the West to transplant hep C NAT-positive donors, the first on the West to perform DCD heart transplantation. We transplant across positive cross-matches employing Eclusimab or Solaris. We have the most experience in the nation with durable biventricular support so patients can ambulate and prehab on their way towards transplantation. This is all juxtaposed on one of the best survival in the nation for a transplant program our size. And we couldn't do it without our fellows. So, wonderful job, Dan, Harpreet, and Quan. I look forward to your case discussion online. I look forward to the bright future each of you have in cardiology. And I look forward to the next fellow versus faculty sports outing. Maybe a different sport. Amit and Dan, thanks again for providing this instrument of fellow education. Next time, we will see you in La Jolla, San Diego. So, bye for now. And now message from the program director, Dr. Daniel Blanchard, who is just such a special and remarkable person, a very strong advocate for all trainees. Even when I was a medical student, he was always a constant source of guidance and mentorship. Dr. Blanchard. Hello to everyone. I'm Dr. Dan Blanchard. I'm the program director for the Cardiology Fellowship Program here at UC San Diego. This case is an example of the high acuity cases we see here at UC San Diego. We have a very active and busy clinical program here with high volumes of ICU patients, advanced heart failure, mechanical support, interventional cases, and electrophysiology. If you want procedural volume, we've got it here. We are the only academic center in the San Diego region, so we see lots of bread and butter cases, but also a lot of acute ICU-level cases. We match six general fellows, two advanced heart failure fellows, two interventional fellows, and two EP fellows each year. Also every year, we take several of our graduating fellows on as faculty. We have become the largest division in UC San Diego Medicine. We are second only to the Department of Medicine itself in size. We're glad you could be here with us today. Wow, what an amazing case. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with yet another terrific discussion and incredible addition to the CardioNerds Case Report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review. 
key take-home and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the Cardio Nerds newsletter. You can join the email list using a link in the episode description as well as from our website, www.cardionerds.com. We thank the ACC Fit section chaired by Dr. Noshin Riza for their support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our incredible production team for elevating our platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Doss, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Bibin Burgis are all internal medicine residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as their phenomenal med-ed mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karan Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate, and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split.